Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before we start the show today, I want to tell you about an upcoming fundraising training I'm going to be attending. This live online workshop is called Seven Figure Fundraising, and it's all about growing major donor support. They go through the mindset you need for making seven-figure asks and help you build your own donor pitch. Then they teach you a step-by-step system for growing existing major donor support and finding new major donors. The great thing about it is that this workshop is taught by a nonprofit CEO, so you're getting advice on what works today. The live online workshop is for one afternoon a week for three weeks. It starts on February 16th, and you can register at sevenfigurefundraising.com. I'm excited to be attending, and I've asked their team to extend a discount to all my listeners. All you have to do is use the code RAINMAKER at checkout for a 5% discount off your ticket. I encourage you to attend with me this live online seven-figure fundraising workshop starting on Feb 16. To sign up, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com, and don't forget to use the code RAINMAKER for a 5% discount. Hi, welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Olson, and I'm joined today by my co-host and partner in crime, Roy Jones. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Hey, everyone. Welcome. I'm honored to be here today talking with Franklin Guerrero. Franklin is the Vice President of Major Gifts at AARP, where he leads a robust and dynamic major gift and gift planning uh, program to help secure outright and deferred gifts to, to support the charitable initiatives of AARP Foundation. Prior to joining AARP, uh, Franklin held senior level development roles at Hispanic Scholarship Fund, Project Hope, USA for UNHCR, and Children International. He's dedicated his entire career and life's work to the service of others through philanthropy. Franklin, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Andrew. It's my pleasure to be with you and to uh, join your listeners uh, uh, this morning. Awesome. I'm, I'm so grateful for you to be here. Um, I'd love if you just take a few minutes and uh, share a little bit more about yourself and about the work that you're doing. As you said, I've been working for uh, a number of years in philanthropy, nonprofits, fundraising, development. And um, if I address something, um, I've been following uh, Coach Stefanski of the Cleveland Browns, not because that is my NFL team, but because he has implemented a philosophy that he actually confesses he learned from another um, sport coach, actually from the Virginia Central University uh, basketball coach. And it is a framework of looking at your life through four ages, history, heroes, heartbreaks, and hope. And your, your question about history is quite important. And I have always think that understanding your roots, where you come from, um, who were the, the people that facilitated who you are today is, is important mm-hmm. and is, is helpful and healthy to have that remembrance and that, if you will, return to the heart. And was born and raised in, in, in Puerto Rico of immigrants from the Dominican Republic. Uh, for me to be raised, uh, to be born and raised in a country with much more possibilities and opportunities Mm-hmm. under the uh, benefits of the United States. So by virtue of birth, uh, uh, been a citizen uh, since day one, also open opportunities for scholarships, for work opportunities, and an easy migration from the island to uh, the continental United States. Uh, but as I was uh, going to college in the island, I learned that 
I was passionate about law and law from a perspective of constitutional law or uh, from a perspective of human rights or civil uh, rights. And in that process, I felt in, the, in Puerto Rico, a lot of those cases are in federal court. And for that, you need uh, better English. And at the time, I was well involved in my local congregation, a United Methodist Church, and decided to pursue theological studies. As I'm engaging in that, I, I learned that I had also a, a call for ministry. And so started serving as a minister in that denomination and quickly realized that um, community was important, but were there other opportunities or platforms from which I could not only help those that belong to that particular congregation, but a nation, a country, a continent, the world. And that then led me to, to work uh, in philanthropy with, with Children International, where I started to do fundraising uh, properly on a full-time basis. And from that, that took me to a number of roles and relationships to where I am now with the AARP uh, Foundation and AARP working, as you mentioned earlier, on, on mayor gifts, plan gifts, uh, both that are outright and deferred. Awesome. Thank you. So let's let's jump into this. Today, we're going to talk a lot about leadership. And, and, you know, this last year has been really challenging for leaders in ways that I think none of us could have expected, you know, two years ago. What's the the biggest challenge you personally faced in the last year? And what did you learn about yourself in that process? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a unique year, you know, and, and those in my case, I'm about probably older than you. I, I turned 50 a couple of months ago and uh, uh, have been thinking about that. I like when I go out and I see people wearing masks and, you know, to be, I know that there's people that are not wearing them, not going to pass a judgment right now, but I think people should use them. So I guess I pass judgment. But uh, just to take that symbol, I said, you know, when in my life did I think that people will go out and wear a mask? I mean, when was that fashionable? When was that part of the deal of your, um, uh, if you will, armor and and fashion or clothing, etc.? So adding that, that just that picture really talks about the changes. Um, also, I think you know, this particular year, there was a collusion of pandemics, you know, you have actually the health pandemic with the coronavirus, but we also have the issues around white supremacy, racism, uh, and the whole unrest that we experienced, particularly during the summer. And then dealing from a constitutional political perspective with the whole issue of fascism, are we a, a republic that will affirm democracy or not? And, and are those institutions and those foundations challenged? So what I found for me is I learned that it's important to go back to something that Marcos Aurelio said, which is to go at fontes, you know, to go back to the basics, to go back to the sources. And what are the sources that, that help us be who we are? I think it's going back to the small things, go back to, to a concept, to a value, love, and to go back to the idea of those histories and heroes that help you form who you are. And therefore, family has turned out to be very important, uh, friends, through friends, um, and from their community and nation and so on. So what I learned is one that we don't need that many things as we thought that we needed then. Um, we can find peace, love, realization 
sometimes in small things and locally and starting with our own home base, right? And I have also learned that we have to have uh, patience uh, and tenacity, but at the same time, keep hope and dream for a day that is much better than, than today for ourselves, but also for the generations that, that are coming uh, behind us. Amen to that. I, I got to say, I think this might be the first uh, conversation we've had on the podcast where someone referenced Marcus Aurelius. So oh. I, I applaud you for <laughs> <I> that. <guess. laughs> There's always a first one. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have more, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you've mentioned a couple of, of leaders already in our conversation in, in, in just a few minutes, but I'm curious, you know, who are the other leaders that you admire most and, and what do you value most about them? You know, I, I, I wrestle with that question, and I, it's it's very uh, um, a good question that I think about it here and there. Part of it is I realize as as I age that sometimes leaders have changed, or maybe they were not as leaders as I thought, and or you know where I am currently, I need different uh, approach to leadership. So I, I I understand it's a challenge to identify some leaders, but I do. Uh, I, I'm just gonna do that and uh, but i think there's two principles that i really like uh one is the whole concept of servant leadership and adaptive uh leadership and that's hard to find and also at least when i was growing up in 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 the 1980s you know you would read stories about civic servants who may have been senators or governors um even presidents and they will go back to their hometown and try to help the local situation. And we're always civic duty minded um, and necessarily didn't enter politics to become super rich, uh, et cetera. So that's hard to find these days, uh, but I have identified people like Bishop Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa, who dedicated his life to, to bring equality through finding truth and justice in, in that process. So I think that that's one of the leaders that I uh, appreciate. Um, even at ARP, uh, our own leader, Joanne Jenkins, who I find to be an inspirational woman, uh, what she has to um, have prepared, done to be uh, the helm of various organizations, including now ARP. I think that speaks highly of of her and so determination, grit, commitment, uh, overcoming adversity um, uh, really speaks uh, highly of her. In, in Brazil, someone like Lula who, um, uh, and this I wanted to say to leaders will have flaws, right? The question would be what kind of flaws maybe and what could be to use maybe a theological uh, term unforgivable sins, right? So, sure. and, which even in theological terms, there's probably only one kind of unforgivable sin. So in that case, but the work he did, the tenacity from a workers and being a, a leader of a union to a political party to become president of a country to move almost 40% of the people below the poverty line, those are the kind of things that, that I admire. And, and to speak to our more of our millennial audience, I, I'm really following uh, Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez, and even though you may not always agree with every stance she, she takes, I think that fresh uh, new leadership to understand that who she serves, her constituency, what are the aspirationals, that commitment to her beliefs and passion and drive, uh, it's, it's, it's quite important. And there are attributes in all of these people that are really 
uh, valuable. And the, the last one I've been thinking about it, I, not that I follow him as much when he was alive, but I've been like th- looking at his life now more is John Lewis, Congressman just Lewis, John Lewis who passed last year and uh, um, his, his whole concept of good trouble. Because I grew up with people saying, don't, don't be a troublemaker, don't create trouble. And so this uh, flip on the, on the language of that and the meaning of that to good trouble, I think is an incredible contribution, contribution that he made reflecting upon what does that mean in specific context. I love that. Yeah. And I, I think he's a really interesting leader. Uh, and that's such a refreshing kind of call to action for people, uh, not just yeah. not just to sit on the sidelines. Um, so I, I think that's that's really great. Thank you. You know, you you mentioned twice now in our conversation, the the issue of of race and you know racial reconciliation. And, and that, like you said, early on in, in the start of, the, of our discussion, 2020 was really just full of conversation around that. You know, I uh, I lived in Minneapolis up until just a few months ago. Mm. So the George Floyd situation was front and center uh, in our community. Um, and that really kind of sparked off a lot of broad conversations about diversity and equity inclusion. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if you could talk a little bit about how you uh, personally and, and maybe your organization are navigating those issues and what is changing with the way that you lead to address what's going on in the country around that conversation. Thank you for that question. And um, I, I'm going to try to, to do both both the personal and institutional role. Um, so I, I approach that understanding always who I am and, and knowing that I'm both a black man, but I'm also a, a man that comes from the Hispanic Caribbean. So that really makes me more than one thing. Uh, but I'm also a, a person that had the privilege of getting advanced uh, education that is doing uh, well in in this country economically. And so uh, I always try to have that perspective uh, of intersectionality. And I think that it, it is important because like to me to say, hey, I'm also one this this monolithic type of person, that's not the case. Uh, and so intersectionality to understand uh, where do I have privilege and, where, and the places that I don't have privilege where I'm looking certain ways and, and, and not so that I can relate and try to understand others. And I think the listening uh, opportunities, open forums, um, discussion is necessary in this country with a north of um, seeking truth because truth will guide us to justice and justice brings reconciliation. Um, at ARP, we we are instituted last year our first um, uh, advisory council for the entire enterprise on diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. We basically think of it why those three words is because diversity. If you think of an event or a celebration, a party. Uh, diversity is inviting people to come in from all different walks of life. Inclusion basically says to them, hey, let me invite you to dance. So not only you are a bystander, but you participate of that. And to me, the whole concept of why equity is important, which is the other, uh, along with intersectionality, equity is important is because I think with equity, we're saying you're not just a guest, you're not just a participant, you're also a co-host hmm. of, of this uh, celebration, of this, of this party. 
And so that element of equity of providing uh, what is needed for people to success, but not necessarily equally. Um, I don't need perhaps, for instance, in this national discussion about the stimulus checks, I don't need the stimulus checks, but I recognize that there are people that need the stimulus sure. check. And therefore, I don't need equality on the stimulus check. So those concepts, navigating those and trying to find the space for uh, cordial conversations, for fragile but honest uh, conversations uh, is, is important. And the, and the one last thing to say on that is that we all can do a better job about microaggressions. And on the other hand, I know we don't, we need to be tough skin. And, uh, but if we can all do that, you know, in my case as a man, when I speak to women or, or people uh, of different nationalities, how do I try to understand first where they come from? That doesn't mean negating who I am, but at the same time, trying to uh, sometimes overcome the challenges and limitations of who I have become. Right. So I want to ask a follow-up to that question. And this is related to donors. So when we look at just kind of the, the national landscape of, of the donor audience, right? They tend to skew older. They tend to skew more Caucasian and they tend mm -hmm. to skew uh, more wealthy. Are conversations coming up for you and your team with donors around this issue? And if so, like how do you navigate those conversations in a way that's sensitive to the donor relationship, but also honoring to the issue that, that's been exposed? Right. Um, those conversations are happening uh, slowly. Okay. I see them more in the foundation uh, space sometimes because some of those foundations have professional staff that are looking at the trends, at the issues. Uh, some of the small family foundations or donors with uh, donor advice funds, uh, or even those that may give outright, by that meaning from liquid assets uh, or cash, uh, uh, those are slow coming conversations. Some do have, but I have to say, my experience is right now is a minority. Uh, a number of donors, have, as you identify, are right now of an older age, of a particular elk, the way they, they have come about, and they have some very clear, I would say, political or social leanings as to how they see the world. I do see in some of them, the next generation, their children, and in some cases, grandchildren, do have a more open-minded, if you will, uh, are ready for some conversations on uh, around race, around privilege, um, around how, um, um, particularly those that have family foundations, how the conversations take place beyond the family to invite people that either quote unquote are beneficiaries or participants of their philanthropy um, and, and, and so there are some of those discussions, but I see them more in the second and third generations mm -hmm. than in the, say, the, the wealth creators um, uh, in those particular families. That is the experience uh, at, at my team level uh, and our ARP foundation now, we have uh, incorporated the equity lenses and discussions. And one of the things that I got to look into the future um, and, but with my team already is we're trying to understand how do we uh, see communities of color 
not only as recipients, beneficiaries, or participants, to use a very nice term, but actually, can they also be the donors, the funders, the philanthropists, and how we um, uh, reinterpret that word to mean more than the person with the six figures uh, dollars donation? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool, thank you. So let's let's change direction a little bit here, and I want to talk a little bit more about crisis. What I'm really curious about is just, you know, in your life in general, um, what's the biggest crisis you faced and how did you navigate it and how did it change you? Yeah. Um, so th there, there are two, uh, and one was, uh, uh, personal. And then I'd like to speak to a professional one, just in case that could also be beneficial. But, uh, in, in 2007, I went to a routine doctor's, uh, consult and he says to me oh, we are seeing something in 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 some of your lab work and uh would you be okay of doing some city scans and i'm like okay that's that's cool and then uh and here is a spoiler a tip for people in the future and i i go i do the city scan and they call me once again and said oh we, we, we think that some of the pictures didn't come clear enough why don't you come back and that second time, it was confirming what they have found. I had a, a, a tumor, wow. a non-Hodgkin lymphoma uh, tumor at the time. And, uh, you know, you hear the word cancer. And back then, even more than today, uh, you know, basically, you think this is the end, the end of, of, yeah. of the road, right? And actually, it wasn't that. But um, at the time, we were, my wife was expecting this, our second child. And... And so we were seriously concerned, but the the idea of you know providing companionship and commitment to my spouse to be there to raise uh, my children to be part of the what they need to provide to support etc. Um, and to find within me um, the the strength and and the fire in the winter um, was, was very important. And so coming across that, digging in, finding philosophy at the time, I really went deeply into uh, Viktor Frankl and the man in search of meaning and the road less travel uh, by, by, by um, forgot his name, Scott Speck and, uh, and so on. And, and also theology and so on to fill some of the voids and to find that energy. But that was the greatest, you know, mm -hmm. like where I stare, I thought a death uh, and that potential, but knock on wood uh, being uh, in remission and healthy since 2008, after I went through a process of chemotherapy and, and, and all of that. So that was a huge challenge from an uh, existential. <laughs> yeah, well, congratulations on being in remission. That's great. Thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you so much. And then professionally, uh, in 2014, uh, there were some uh, strategic and leadership transitions abrupt, in my opinion, at a, at a place of work. And it, it led to me confronting certain issues. I think some of the issues that we're dealing with now, hmm. um, how decisions are made, who is included, Where's the equity in some of the decisions made, et cetera. And I had to confront leadership at a particular organization from board leadership to senior leadership. And it had a cost. Basically, 
I was offered an opportunity to leave <laughs> and which I took the opportunity to leave. And then I had to reinvent and, and work on myself uh, to find new opportunities. And thank goodness by build, by having good relationships, it's always important to network. It's always important to new uh, and get to know new, new, new people. It is important to make sure that, that, that you're always there to offer support when needed and when possible to your colleagues. And so as soon as that situation happened, within uh, a month or so, I had already a, a, a good opportunity. And that actually then brought me to the East Coast from the Midwest. But that professionally was the first time I, I had a sense of betrayal, mm-hmm. uh, a sense of, wow, um, you know, you could give yourself entirely and then there's, there's never enough. And so one of the takeaways and which I started was, and that the reason of Marcus Aurelius made me think of, you know, if he also said, you always go to the sources. And so I also learned and realized that who's there always for you are going to be your family and your best friends. And so to always take care of that, of that level of relationship, that circle before you care for the many other circles. That's great. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about values. You know, as as a, a leader in a really large and, and complex organization, and obviously you've had a, a long career leading uh, teams and, and organizations, what are the values that are most important to you? I think transparency, in, in a, and perhaps this is not the hierarchy of the order, but sure. transparency, um, dignity, um, truth, uh, justice, love, um, dedication, openness, all of those are uh, in, important values, productivity. To me, um, they provide the foundation uh, the way of being of both an individual and an organization and is is the one measure to use to say are we being accountable to these values are we living by then and if they are our values therefore the impact the results and our strategies need to be in accordance with that and sometimes also which many organizations sometimes forget in, in my opinion one of the most important for organizations which don't have a constitution necessarily they may have bylaws, but not a constitution, is the, the budget, the annual budget. <laughs> How much that budget reflects the values? And then the operations and processes, are they consistent? And that's where sometimes you find what you some people will call a cognitive dis- dissonance between hey, this is what we state as values, but then we treat people a certain way. This is how we allocate our resources. This is how we uh, fund uh, our, our operations. But having those values and having a reflective practice or practice, meaning we're not perfect. And we, I, I spoke earlier of we all flawed in, in many uncertain ways, but can I then go back and have what Aristotle would say in terms of phronesis? Was I fair? <laughs> Did I base these decisions on my uh, value system? And also, I think in terms of Aristotle with the Francis is, am I aiming at the center, at the mm-hmm. radical center so that I am at a place where we all can live with that? And so that to me is why values are, are, are so important at a personal level, 
and organizational level. And I know these discussions I have had with individual donors, with people in, in the business world, and I said, well, well, business should not have, or corporations should not have necessarily this be held to the same values. And I completely disagree um, because not that they are personas or humans in the same that individuals like us, we are, but they play a role in society. They are, if you will, members of a society and have to play by certain rules. And uh, before those rules, they get expressed in terms of, of value. So I think from the personal to the family, to the corporate uh, expression and definitely governments, uh, those values should be and are usually embedded in the constitution. We have to live by those and those should guide our, our, our practice. But to me, again, truth, dignity, uh, justice, productivity are very, very important uh, values to expose and to have uh, in place. Yeah, you know, I, I love what you said about looking at the budget to see if that aligns with your values. I mean, so often I think organizations go through a long drawn out process to, you know, to get to a new set of values or to refresh their values and share it out with their organization and everyone there. But you're right. If, if those aren't baked into your overall strategic plan and executed within how you invest dollars and time, th there is a really big disconnect. And uh, I've never heard anybody put it exactly that way, but I, I think it's it's a brilliant way to think about it. No, I, I, absolutely. And I think that to an earlier question or conversation we had on diversity, equity, and inclusion, given the, the times that we are, one of the things in that diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion council that I am with the ARP, one of the, the things that we're looking at is not only um, uh, how we index in terms of recruitment compared to national demographics, how the promotions take place, how the pay increases take place, mm -hmm. looking at who are our providers and suppliers, uh, how when we make grants to other organizations, what are those organizations who had access to the information to apply and to be guided and coach? Because I think in societies like ours, um, dollars and financial allocations speak to uh, those values and those commitments, strategic commitments and um, decisions that we make in terms of what is uh, categorical, what is something that, that we need to do. Uh, well, they need to happen with financial resources. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious to, to hear from you how... Um, how you and other leaders in your organization are leveraging data and technology to drive growth. And I'm really curious about two, two aspects of that. What are you doing in the area of talent development? And how are you leveraging data and technology around that? And then also, how, does, how do those two elements shape how you lead from a philanthropic growth standpoint? No, I think it's definitely one of those imperatives of the 21st century nonprofit leadership or fundraising philanthropic uh, leadership and looking at the m metadata. And as someone says, so one data point is one data point, more than one data point that becomes <laughs> or starts to constitute a trend, right? And so I think data and metadata is... Uh, at the center of everything we do um, from the perspective uh, of fundraising, then I'll talk about talent development, uh, is understanding who is our audience, uh, where are those audiences, 
how do we connect to their relationship with us, um, understanding the intersectionality. You know, yes, there are women, but it's also an educated women, and it's a woman that lives in ex- a certain part of the country, it's a city, it's a rural, this person has family, no family, etc. Trying to understand the best we can the multiple variables of the individuals that we work with so that we can, particularly in the area that I work, which is Mayor Gibbs and, and Gift Planning, is to uh, cater and deliver for them and offer a product that is uh, personalized enough, that is informed enough so that there is an intimacy in the connection between that donor and who we are. And so that, that we let them know that we know them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like in our personal relationships with those friends, those, fa- those family members that are very close to me. I know that I want to please them, to make them happy before they even expect that to happen. Let's say on their birthday. Well, why do I have to wait for their birthday? and not send some flowers or, hey, here is uh, a ticket for a game you like, or, hey, I saw this watch and um, I had the opportunity to, I wear it or use it, but really I think it will look better on you, et cetera, et cetera, right? So understanding that is is critical to us. And so for my team, particularly, uh, we're a team of 11 in the foundation uh, development department. How do we can use data and information um, and the many, many points of information that we have from our donors so that we provide an offer and a service to that caters to them. One of the things that we're trying to do is that we really want to be part of, uh, lack of a better term, a generosity network. Mm-hmm. And when we can, if we provide a service, help people how to understand their gift planning how to uh, use the various instruments and vehicles. But even then, they decide that they're not giving to us. We celebrate that. We affirm that. And we see what we did as a service. And so Mm -hmm. that's also uh, very, very important to us. The next thing will be um, uh, along that is to help technology tell us what's the best cadence. Uh, When can we... um, provide the information when someone is searching, how real time can that be? Say someone comes to our website and is looking at um, how to help seniors or uh, people, older adults, the 50 plus to get a second career. And we notice that they're navigating those pages is how quickly can we have Amazon style, an email that says other people supported this products or this offers that we have. Uh, other people uh, was able to participate of this webinar. Uh, we recommend this to you. And there's always here, here is a staff person in your region that will be uh, there to talk to you. That is also part of the things that we're working on, how we leverage that, that uh, uh, information and data real time. I think it's, it's very, very important. Uh, 15 years ago, I learned that if I could someone was inquiring and said, hey, I'm interested in, in donating to educational services. I'm looking at various charities. I would go to my boss and said, I remember this one particular case, I need to go to Tampa. I think the, the gift is worthwhile. We are in the short list. I think if I get there first and I can make an impression, we win. And we won. And so, but today there are other ways to get to Tampa that don't have to be uh, just get on a fly and, and get there. 
So that's that. And in terms of talent development, um, webinars are getting to be very important. Uh, coaching sessions, ongoing training uh, when we can. And I'm, I'm happy and, you know, I'm really privileged to be in an organization like ARP and ARP Foundation that believe very strongly in people's career development. And there are significant resources allocated for that, for every employee and on my team also participating uh, of conferences. And one thing that is happening still, uh, Andrew, and uh, you I don't know what, what is your take on that? I'll be uh, interested was very beneficial to me many years ago, two decades ago, when I started in, in fundraising, um, that there was an informal group, I remember at the time being in New Jersey, New York City area, that came together. And it was for us a good group because it was the mayor gift officers working with international development, mm -hmm. uh, with charities that, that support causes overseas. And it was great to me and hear what other people go through and how they pitch and how they uh, build their portfolios and what was resonating, et cetera, et cetera. So informal opportunities, uh, I think that they are lacking. Uh, and, and, and I know that there's the AFPs and the APRAs and the different chapters and groups, but sometimes who you need is I don't need a long or big chapter. Are there three or four people that more or less are like in my human services area or in my uh, health or arts and museums or whatever that I can speak about donor research? Um, and that is one area for career or talent development that I think is missing. Uh, it obviously takes um, time and additional time for people, but I really encourage young professionals and and non-young professionals to really engage in that. Uh, and when I can, I try to participate of those as, as, as with the same importance of those that are pay memberships. Um, and so that is the other area of attention for talent development. And the last thing I would say is um, oftentimes I have hired people that didn't have a, like in my area fundraising track or five years of experience. And I have seen those people to uh, flourish and to develop a great passion because they really needed that opportunity. And this has to do more with recruitment and development, but finding that uh, opportunity. And in the last couple of years, um, having a keen eye for, again, diversity, uh, uh, equity, and inclusion in both hiring and promotion opportunities. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. You know, I, I have a perspective on a couple of things that you mentioned, you know, the, the idea of bringing in people who don't necessarily have fundraising experience. I find that sometimes they make the best fundraisers over time because they have the fewest amount of bad habits that have to be broken. Right? <laughs> good, good way to say it. I, I'm going to quote that. <laughs> and, and I think you're right about those kind of informal networks. I often feel like I get, so much more value out of those conversations than going and sitting for a day in, you know, training sessions, what, you know, regardless of who's putting them on, um, right. you know, the, the, those big presentations, there's, you know, there's usually some good nuggets that you get out of them, but being able to, to sit down together and just say, what's working for you. And, and more importantly, maybe what's not working that I could learn from. So I don't make a similar mistake. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I'm right there with you on that. I, I like that one you said. I, I used to tell new fundraisers, uh, 
I said, you know, we're all gonna make mistakes. I'm telling you my story or my or my experiences so that you go ahead and make new mistakes. Right, Don't make exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right, so last question before I let you go for the day. Um, I, you know, get your crystal ball out and let's talk about, you know, what, what changes do you see coming to our industry over the next decade? And, and what are you and your team doing to kind of prepare the next generation of leaders to successfully navigate those changes? That is a terrific question. And one, again, that, as you say, is a crystal ball still analysis. I don't know that we all know. I think there's certain trends that, that we can point to and, and things that, that I think are coming and coming quickly. Uh, I, the one thing, and again, I think is being part of the overall, I would say, um, thought in this conversation. And I, I, I appreciate this, uh, Andrew, and you have a, a fan here, um, is, is diversity. I think more women, more people of color will be in the profession. I was um, quite uh, both surprised, but also really happy. Last year, there's now a new, uh, I believe it's called um, African Americans Development Officers uh, Organization um, uh, and quickly has uh, great numbers. There's more Hispanics in the profession too, or Latinos, um, African American, Asian. Uh, that in terms of the talent and the fundraising side, I think we also uh, are going to need to start finding ways to approach a more, a more diversity in terms of the philanthropists, <laughs> uh, new people coming to wealth, particular thanks to the STEMS uh, profession or technology uh, areas um, have diversified, particularly the new millionaires. Uh, but also they are challenging the whole uh, nonprofit concept and they're developing NLCs or uh, they're developing other structures to respond to their own philanthropic aims and, and mission or cause-oriented drive that they have. And so how we wrestle with that, are the way that nonprofits are set up today, the only way to express a, a philanthropy uh, or to do fundraising. So that's... Uh, some of the conversations toward the future. I think a point or two that we just had, technology and data is how to understand uh, better those, how trends are formed, how decisions get informed uh, in, in what we do. Um, I think data will continue to be paramount, but as we have learned, and I think this is uh, uh, work of the future, learning of the future, which a future that in breaks today, it's not like 10 years from now necessarily, to me, one of the things I'll be curious to look at is virtual reality. Um, and given pandemic and maybe other concerns around health, uh, um, how do we have both the hardware technology and the software technologies to communicate mission that way? And maybe that is gonna be yet not for the mass market, but as mayor gives and principal givings, uh, the big giving, uh, gonna use more and more of those resources. Um, yeah, for security concerns, for health concerns, you don't wanna go donor X, Y, and C to country X. Here is virtual reality, no longer two dimensions, photo or video. Here is what this uh, refugee camp looks like. Yeah. Or here is the school that if you make this donation, this is how the schools uh, that we build look like, or locally, here is our 
um, uh, food um, uh, and soup kitchen uh, uh, center or our homeless center, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that is local or our employment program uh, or our university. And so I think that that's also uh, a trend that is coming. Um, and this thing that I speak with some of my colleagues is, will the mayor give officer the way we know it disappear? Is there gonna be robotics? Is there gonna be automation? Uh, can Alexa have the critical, meaningful uh, fundraising conversations and solicitations that, uh, that we have today, right? Again, going to virtual re re reality. Uh, uh, so that's also part of that, is that in 10 years, um, donor advice funds are gonna continue to grow. It's giving people an opportunity to put the money in some other place that no longer is theirs, but they still act like it's theirs. And the challenge is, do people look at them like savings accounts and they wanna see them grow or investment accounts. And then they forget that actually this money was set to huh. be given away. Uh, that's part of that di di discussion. And um, uh, I think that those are some of the of the of the big big challenges and uh, the one also another group that is interesting is this uh, growing number of billionaires and <laughs> and um, how will they support the sector the nonprofit sector and philanthropy and again that goes back to an earlier point are they going to use the traditional nonprofits or family or foundations or they're going to go in a different route that is unknown to us and, and that new legal schemes will facilitate. Yeah, no, those are great, great topics. We might have to schedule a second conversation to talk more about those because those are really interesting. Franklin, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate you sharing with us and, and making time to uh, to talk with our, our audience. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a pleasure to, to be with you. Uh, I, I truly enjoyed this time together and uh, I wish you and, and your audience uh, a very good uh, year, a fantastic 2021, uh, and better days for all of us. Thank you. Be one. Before I let you go, if someone else who's listening wants to, to reach out to connect with you or learn more, what's the best way for people to reach you? So for those in the profession, LinkedIn, uh, that could be a good way. They could, uh, my email is uh, F uh, Guerrero, G-F-G-U-E-R-R-E-R-O at aarp.org or my phone number 732-586-5837. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you. Have a great one. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.